Hello and welcome to Preoccupied. Today we're trying out something new. So Maddie and I each read a research article and we are going to summarize it. We don't know what the other read, so you're going to be hearing about this for the first time as we are. Please pardon any scrambling that may occur. <laughs> Definitely. We're going to have some fun with this. All right. So Maddie, what did you read today? Okay, I'm going first. So I read The Rise and Fall of Humor, Psychological Distance Modulates Humorous Responses to Tragedies. Ooh. And this is by McGraw et al. 2013. Where are they at? University of Colorado Boulder. Okay. So Zanin, as we've learned in the past, as you might recall from episode eight, humor you know, can really help us cope with difficult situations. In fact, it's even categorized as a healthy defense mechanism, right? The question that these researchers had was they wanted to see how humorous responses to a tragedy, like whether or not something was funny, changed over time. What they did was they measured people's reactions to Hurricane Sandy jokes over 100 days. They hypothesized that there will be a sweet spot for when something is funniest, where the tragedy was not too close and not too far, not too soon, not too uh, much time afterwards. Interesting. So, yeah, so they were looking at, like, is it too soon to be joking about this, right? Exactly. Okay. So they kind of based their hypothesis on a previous theory that they developed called the benign violation theory. Mm. And this theory aims to explain why some things are funny and some things just aren't as funny. So they they theorize that humor happens when we see a situation as wrong or, you know, threatening in some way. That's the violation part. But at the same time, the situation is also perceived as being like, okay, or acceptable in some way, like, oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, um, That's the benign part. So benign violation theory. And um, this is kind of like that sweet spot in between when something is, when a joke might be too tame, you know, or it might be a little too risque. So the authors um, in a previous study used the example of play fighting, where if you're not play fighting at all, well, that's no fun, right? That's a little bit too benign. Um, but when it seems like play fighting has turned into an altercation, it's not really fun anymore. So play fighting is an example of something being in that sweet spot of benign, a little bit socially unacceptable, but it's fine. They're kids, they're whatever. With that hypothesis in mind, here's how they went about testing it. What I'm sure you're most interested in hearing, Zenon. So Oh, for sure. They had over a thousand participants participate in this like online survey, and they had 10 groups of 100. And each of these groups was assigned a time point in the evolution of Hurricane Sandy's destruction. So they had, for example, like, one day before the hurricane hit, October 29th, they had 100 participants respond to three tweets, and they rated how funny, humorous, upsetting, offensive, boring, irrelevant, and confusing each tweet was. I know it's a lot of adjectives, but bear with me here. And they also provided their demographics and their geographical distance yeah. so they could kind of see relative to like you know, proximity the to the yeah right. <laughs> the literal tragedy i bet so, there's some really cool graphs here there are some graphs i can share those with you but not 
are exclusively audio participating listeners. It is unfortunate, yes. Um, but that was one example. One day before the hurricane hit, the day the hurricane arrived, and then the other eight groups were spread out over the following days and weeks after the tragedy. What they found was that there's kind of like a rise and falling action of how funny something was. So it sounds like it really supported their hypothesis then that there was like a sweet spot, but it wasn't quite as funny before or after that sweet spot in time. Yes. So I'm looking at the graph right now and they kind of separated into two different time periods, like during the crisis and after the crisis. So during the crisis, when the hurricane has just touched down, um, so from the day before to about a week of hurricane destruction happening. They found that before the hurricane hit, that's when the jokes were funniest during this time period. And then you learn, oh, 200 lives were taken. Ha ha, homes were destroyed. Not as ha ha. Um, so we see in this graph that it kind of goes on this, this downward trend. But then after the crisis, um, about November 14th through February 6th is when they say, um, they see, we see more of an arc. So it becomes funnier and funnier and peaking at about 36 days after hmm. the crisis is the sweet spot when um, an inappropriate joke or, you know, a little bit more edgy joke might be the funniest. And after that, I imagine it decreases in relevancy um, as if we look at it through the lens of the benign violation theory, after we, the next mark point they have is 64 days. At 64 days, maybe it's just not as much of a violation to joke sure. about it. So it's not as funny. It's more into the benign category. So that is what I learned. Interesting. I wonder how that differs for events of, I don't want to say greater significance, but I guess of greater prominence where the violation aspect stays in the public consciousness for years or even decades after. Like 9-11. Or the Holocaust. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. I feel like it would vary a lot too, like based on, you know, they actually found that there was no really significant relationship between like geography. I really thought while I was reading it that, you know, maybe people who were in that region would not find those jokes funny at all, but it wasn't statistically significant. Um, But it does make me think about how where you are and who you are affects how you respond to uh, different kinds of benign violations. If some feel more violating than others, depending on your experiences, you know? Yeah. And that proximity effect that you would expect is also something that we've been seeing not manifesting with COVID-19. Like you would expect that if someone has like a close friend or relative who's died of COVID-19, they're going to treat it differently than someone who hasn't, right? Totally. But so far, most of the research I've read has failed to find those effects. For example, um, one study I know we discussed in our COVID special was how people think that the government should respond to COVID-19. That had no effect. Um, Like, there was no effect in that study of whether people knew someone who had died of COVID-19. So it's interesting to think about these different factors that affect it, even independent of kind of the personal factors that 
we see as prominent, like proximity to Hurricane Sandy. And something else that I wonder about is how faceless the victims are. You know, you read, oh my gosh, over 200 people died, but it doesn't feel as, you know, so psychological distance kind of makes a negative event less threatening. And there are four different ways that this kind of manifests. So the first one might be um, like a social distance when it happens to you versus when it happens to somebody else, kind of like you were talking about Zenin with the COVID example. Um, or if it happens in another place, that would be spatial distance. And that's kind of what we were talking about with the geographical um, factor in this particular study at a distant point in time, which is temporal distance. And that would be, well, like the study that we just explained, you know, the now versus then of a tragedy occurring, for example, or the hypothetical uh, just like kind of factor of psychological distance where something is really happening versus when you're imagining something happening. And so what that makes me think about when I was talking about, you know, kind of the facelessness of all of the victims of Hurricane Sandy is like, I wonder if it would be different if it was something like when a victim of, say, like a violent crime is martyrized or something like that. Sure. Um, or when it feels like you can really attach an identity um, to the tragedy that you're making a joke about, you know? <laughs> if it's like 10 specific people who died and their faces were everywhere for weeks and weeks, like, I wonder if somebody would feel that, like, more of a threat of violation. Uh, if they were able to conjure the idea of those people's families, you know, or see their faces and yeah. um, making the tragedy much more concrete than just hearing a number. You know what I mean? Definitely. And I wonder what these researchers have been doing um, with all of the situations in 2020 that I'm sure have provided great fodder for yeah. this kind of research. In 2021, even <laughs> 15 days in. Oh yeah. Um, and honestly, like that's the way that I enjoy coping with things is is through humor. Oh, um, for sure. So Twitter has been has been keeping me going for sure. Fantastic. Oh my gosh, is that it? I wish they provided the tweets <laughs> that they included in the study. Yeah. What were they? I just, I can't even read them to you because it won't be funny if I read it. <laughs> well, that's the point that we have the temporal distance now, right? Okay. Okay. Like it just won't be funny because it's me. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So the tweets that they provided for participants were from like an account on Twitter called Hurricane Sandy. So it's like Hurricane Sandy talking. And um, here's the first tweet. It's all caps. Just blew the roof off uh, Olive Garden. Free breadsticks for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Pity laugh. That's what I thought. Um, the second one is, oh shit, just destroyed a Starbucks. Now I'm a pumpkin spice hurricane. <laughs> um, the third one. And this is October, right? Yes. I mean, yeah, actually, that's true. It so was, I wonder yeah. if that was a bit of a confounding variable, that pumpkin spice becomes less funny over time. 
you know, when you look at the graphs, actually, some of them are um, just like funnier, like perceived as funnier than other ones in general. Um, I can see which that. Is interesting. The third one is, oh my God, this is so explicit. This bitch was like, I'm dying at Hurricane Sandy tweets. And I'm like, you about to be dying in real life, ho. Well. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just wondering too, like, was this a real account? Or what I love to <laughs> picture is that these researchers are trying to calculate like the best Hurricane Sandy joke, you know? I mean, who better to try calculating the best Hurricane Sandy jokes than, like, someone whose entire career is focused on researching dark humor? I know, right? Um, I was doing some research on, on McGraw. Um, by that, I mean I went to his website for three minutes. And um, I was like, damn, like, either this dude is, like, the funniest person ever or is, like, just the worst person to be around at parties. <laughs> like like the person you don't want to bring with you to a stand-up show. It'll just be in your ear like, that one? I don't know. That one was kind of on the tamer side, like taking notes during, during the special. What did you find? I found an article by Stavins, who is in Israel, and Belair Dron at um, University of Illinois Champaign. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they got together 120 17-month-old babies. Whoa, okay, okay. I gotta, like, totally shift where my brain is. I'm, like, thinking about <laughs> Hurricane Sandy. And... <laughs> and now we're thinking about babies, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how does one conduct psychology on babies, one might ask? You can't ask them questions. You can't give them a personality questionnaire. There's very little behavior that you can observe and attribute as non-random. But these researchers did it, and that methodology is really interesting. The topic is also really interesting. These researchers were looking at socio-moral development. So the development of moral expectations within groups. And the question that they asked is, will these babies expect a leader to intervene when someone commits a transgression against someone else. Interesting. Right. So this is very sophisticated for 17 months old. Yeah, at, least at first glance, it was really true. That's it like is. a year and a half. Like, that's mm -hmm. nothing. We don't really have language to use here, right? So they're going off, like, what very little information they're able to glean here. Um, what did they hypothesize? They hypothesized that that these children would be able to detect this difference, that they would be able to recognize a leader and that they would expect that leader to step in when someone commits a transgression against someone else. So how do we represent this for 17 month olds? Well, we do it with puppets of teddy bears. Huh? Yeah. That's nice. They conducted three separate experiments. So in each experiment, there were three teddy bear puppets, one on each side and one in the middle the teddy bear in the middle would come out with two toys and place the toys in the middle and um, with the expectation that the other two bears would share the toys, right? And of course, what better concept to go for with a 17-month-old than sharing? <laughs> um, because it's like such a fundamental 
like very early concept that is instilled in them, right? Share your toys. Sharing is caring. Exactly. They see these two teddy bears expected to share, but one rushes in and grabs the toys before the other can get one. That is so rude. It is. And the children recognize this. And when there was a leader present, they looked longer at the scene, waiting for the leader to intervene and do something. Mm. Right? So they would sort of gaze transfixed at the scene if there was a leader present and the leader didn't do anything. They would just be looking and waiting. Is this leader going to step in and do something? Wow. So the leader, is the leader like the third bear? The leader is the third bear. Yeah. Okay. Neither victim nor perpetrator. Exactly. The leader is the third bear who introduced the toys. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's right. However, they still did some comparison versus um they showed some babies a bear who was clearly denoted as a leader and some babies a bear who was just shown the same way as the other two bears just as a peer right of a bystander maybe to the transgression the babies did not expect the bystander to do anything really yeah they didn't that is interesting yeah they didn't look longer in waiting when the person there wasn't a leader and they denoted leaders. So the first two experiments, what was different was um, how they denoted the leader. So in the first experiment, they did some familiarization trials where um, before showing the experimental trial where they want to see how the babies react to a transgression, they just showed the middle bear directing the other two bears in like some little exercises, right? So the middle bear would say like uh, front and the bears would turn toward the viewer and back and the bear would turn away from the viewer, right? To show that the middle bear has power over how the other two act. The middle bear is leading them in that action. And then there was of course a control where the bear wasn't a leader. The bear would still say these same things, but the other two bears wouldn't react. Like they wouldn't care. They just look at like what are you what are you talking about and go back <laughs> to what they're doing, right? You know, I was just thinking about that actually. Um <laughs> like literally just as he said it. I was thinking about, you know, what makes a leader versus a bystander and it's as you said, like that demonstration of power i'm the one who brings in the toys you know i'm the one who gives who talks and maybe introduces the scene you know and it kind of made me think about um how we really do see that for as long as we're alive like (laughs) parents if you have siblings you know you see a parent uh intercept between a sibling conflict you know and the parent has the power same with teachers get older goes to you know law enforcement i think one thing that's interesting to look at is sort of a counter example to a leader is um one of their suggestions in the discussion for future research was to replicate this research but instead of presenting a leader right either by um giving behavioral direction or the other way in experiment two that they presented a leader was um by making the leader taller and bigger and like wearing big clothes, mm-hmm. right? Based on some anthropological research that leaders tend to wear um, things like that and be portrayed in larger <laughs> stature, right? So think oh, of like right. a... George Washington. Yeah, think of like George <laughs> Washington, his big hat. Maddie Paxson. Mm-hmm. Yep, Maddie Paxson. Think of um, like a bishop 
in the church oh, yeah. who wears like that big that miter to make him taller, right? Like a steeple. Yeah, like a steeple, right? So that imagery is also instilled from birth and associated with leadership. Huh. That is so true. I had never noticed that before. That one they drew from a long history of anthropological research on the topic. Something else that I thinking of, I'm thinking about is how, you know, identity and everything kind of plays into that. I wonder if babies would have expectations of what makes a leader even at that young. You know, if you mainly see your mother interfering in between your siblings or something, maybe you would expect a woman to take charge there, or maybe you already have the patriarchy ingrained in your little 17-month-old psyche and you expect a man to be that leader or somebody gendered in a way that appears masculine, mm-hmm. <laughs> masculine teddy bear, something like that. That's interesting too, yeah. So all of the teddy bears in this puppet show had female voices, but it would be interesting to see another condition added where they compare by gender. Another thing that's interested me about how they portray a leader is something they mentioned in the discussion section about what they want to do for future research. Um, They want, instead of introducing a leader, so someone who um, is sort of followed voluntarily and upholds good moral standards, they wanted to present a bully. Mm. So someone who's shown like using physical force to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Sort of at the expense of the other two bears. And see if the children would still expect the bully bear to intervene and maintain fairness. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about leadership, we talk about power, but it's also hard to talk about bullying without talking about power as well. Exactly. Why wouldn't that hold up both ways, right? Exactly. So the question is, do these infants recognize the difference between a leader and a bully? Or is it just that they see someone in power? Right. Whoa, that's kind of (laughs) deep. It is. And really deep for 17 months old. Yeah. I just can't get over how much they're pulling from these babies and and these conclusions that they are able to draw. Like, it sounds science. They're making these comparisons. They're seeing different um, attention times. And they have a huge basis of literature. I think the study had something like 60 references to base um, these inferences on. But let's be clear. There's nothing funny about teddy bear puppets inflicting violence on one another. (laughs) She says laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening to us uh, ramble a little bit, get to dig into some new research, um, well, new to us. and um, kind of explore some new concepts maybe we'll get to explore further in future episodes. And in the meantime, give us a follow on all of our social media. We're on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram is Preoc Podcast. Also, feel free to check out our website where we have all of the episodes kind of categorized by what you might find most interesting, as well as um, a nice little table of Uh, referrals we would love to collect send us an email hosts at pre-occupied.com which also happens to be our website address and we will see you next time on preoccupied
<clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Damn cheese stick, you know. <laughs> Darn. Okay.